Good morning. Good morning. Everybody's back now. Okay. Before we uh, continue, uh, because it's all about connecting ideas and sharing information, I'd like to share a bit of my world with you. And that's the world of news. While we've been in here, some news coming out of Parliament. Here it goes. I'm going to give you the full deal with my news voice too. <laughs> Hundreds of leather-bound copies of the Constitution have gone missing from Parliament. So while you're sitting in here, there are people who have thought about stealing copies of our Constitution. Let's hope they pass it on to people who actually need to read it as well. <clears throat> but without further ado, we've got Lisa Hartman, who is not only just a pro in the field, but she's also a runner. Something I do not do, Lisa. I cannot do unless if somebody is chasing me. Lisa also joined Coronation Global Emerging Markets in 2016. And as you know, Coronation is one of our sponsors. So thank you and a very big welcome to you. I've got a mic. Okay. Um, morning. Can everyone hear me? Is the microphone working? All the way at the back. Okay. So I'm Lisa Harkman. I work at Coronation and the Emerging Markets team. I'm here today to talk about or to motivate the case for active investing in emerging markets. I didn't realize that Satrix was one of the co-sponsors, so that's a little bit awkward. <laughs> I'm also not going to be standing behind the lectern, because even in my high heels, I doubt that many of you would see me. Um, so uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to be standing and talking to you quite a bit. So if we take a step back and we say to ourselves, why invest in emerging markets in the first place? We all live in South Africa, so we've got first-hand experience of an emerging market. We read the headlines every day about corruption and bribery. We experience the failed uh, state-owned entities. We have load shedding. We have dams not being built. And so you, it's a very rational question to ask yourself, why bother? Why not just invest in the S&P 500, collect a decent return, sleep easily at night? Why even go to the bother of investing in emerging markets? Now, we think there are a number of compelling reasons. So the first is that most of the businesses in emerging markets are actually only at the start of their growth journey. So if you think about a company, it goes through a life cycle which includes four phases. And the first is the introductory phase. The company produces a product. They're testing whether it resonates in the market. Assuming the product is successful, it goes through a high growth phase. And then a business or a company goes into maturity and then into decline. And many of the businesses in global markets are already in the maturity or the decline phase, whereas the majority of the emerging market companies are actually only at the start of their evolution. So for us as investors, it's quite exciting to be able to participate in a very long runway for growth. Another reason to invest in emerging markets is to gain access to the rising wealth trends that we're seeing. So in most emerging markets, Consumers are starting to generate a little bit more disposable income. They can pay for their kids to go to school. They're meeting their rent obligations. And now they can start thinking about perhaps a few luxury discretionary purchases. So maybe they go on their first trip. Maybe they decide they can now afford life insurance. So what we're seeing is a rising wealth trend in emerging markets. And some of the companies that we own can capitalize on these trends. A further reason is to gain access to the formalization of emerging markets. Now, South Africa, although it is emerging, is actually quite a formal market already. If you go to India or even to Russia, people are still buying the majority of their groceries, their clothing in street markets. They're not going to the pick and pays of this world. But that trend is changing. And so what we see is that in emerging markets, um, 
food retailers are actually incredibly underpenetrated. The same with the equivalents of Trueworth, pet stores. Those businesses are only just starting their growth, their growth runway. You also have the migration from an unbanked population to a banked population. So whereas even in South Africa, banks are quite mature businesses, in the emerging markets, many of these banks are very immature businesses. Debt to GDP is very low. Consumers are not indebted like we are here. And so there's a very exciting opportunity within financial services. A fourth trend is to gain access to the premiumization that we're seeing in some of the other emerging economies. So as I spoke to the rising wealth effect, consumers are then also taking that one step further and going, you know what, I don't need to wear no-name branded pep store tackies. Maybe now I can afford Nike or Adidas or one of the other branded names. Maybe they migrate from an unbranded to a branded toothpaste. It's small differences, but they move to branded products. And then in terms of beer and spirits, instead of buying a beer from the Shabin, no-name label, or Papsuk, you know, they're going, actually, I can afford to drink something a little bit better. And they migrate up from, say, Gordon's Gin to Amber Inverosh. And, you know, they make those next steep. They go from driving a Mahindra to, buy, to driving a Jaguar. So the consumers, that premiumization trend is still a very, very strong trend in emerging markets. And some of the companies we own are taking advantage of that. And the bottom line is that if you just buy the index, you're not, you're not gaining access to any of these trends. And I'm going to show you why here. I've included just the top 25 stocks in the index. And what you'll see firstly is that this index is not diversified. You're actually gaining access to pretty much four dominant sectors. So first of all, you have technology, and yes, that's great. Some of these are the best businesses in the world, but they also have their own set of corporate governance issues. Then you're gaining access to semiconductor and electronics manufacturing companies. And now, although they're based in Korea and Taiwan, they're actually manufacturing for the likes of Apple. And so they're not experiencing that very strong growth that emerging markets have because Apple is their core supplier and their fortunes are very closely tied to a developed market company. Next, you've got banks. Now, although in some markets banks are great businesses, the majority of the big banks are actually state-owned. Three of the top 25 stocks are Chinese state-owned banks, which makes it even worse. And so you've also got a state-owned bank in Russia, which actually is quite a good investment, but you're getting a, a very large exposure to banks. And then lastly, eight of the top 25 companies are resources. And so you're investing in Vale and Petrobras in Brazil, you're getting Gazprom and Luke Oil in Russia. I mean, these are not investments that you would want to own. So to own the index, you're actually not benefiting from all of those trends I mentioned. You're buying a concentrated index of fairly poor quality companies. And so if I give you some examples then, um, you know, we speak about the governance in emerging market companies is often poor. If we look, I mean, state-owned entities are generally not known for treating minorities fairly. And I'm going to give you an example. So if we look at Gazprom, which is one in the top 25, it's a large Russian state-owned gas company. I'm going to talk about some of their shenanigans just in the recent few years. So in 2013, Gazprom, as I remind you, it's a gas company, decided to buy a whole host of media companies newspapers, TV channels, and they did this so that they could be a mouthpiece for Putin. Nothing to do with their core business. In 2014, they used gas prices to bully Ukraine into siding with Russia over the EU. So Putin offered Ukraine 30% discount on gas prices, provided he formed an alliance with Russia rather than EU. 
nothing to do with the, the business's core business. Minority shareholders just saw revenue decline by 30% to Ukraine. Then relations with Ukraine went sour, and Gazprom said, okay, no, we're cutting Ukraine out. We're going to fund two new gas pipelines to Europe that circumvent Ukraine. And you can see the ones in the news today, the Nord Stream 2, that goes via the Baltics, and then the, the other pipeline goes via Turkey. So now they just cut Ukraine out of the equation. And this is a company with shareholders that is acting purely as a device for Putin to, in his geopolitical tensions. Then in 2014, they announced they'd sponsor the Olympic Games in Sochi. Also nothing to do with their core business. In 2015, Putin decided he wanted to form a closer alliance with China, and he promised to start supplying gas to China, and Gazprom had to pay $55 billion to build a gas pipeline across Siberia. So all in, in the last three years, they've frittered away $300 billion of shareholder money in all of these other projects. The Chinese tel telcos is another example. So in 2009, China decided, you know, this whole 3G technology, we need to get on the bandwagon. But they weren't sure which technology was going to be successful. A number of technologies were already out there in the world. And so they said, okay, we've got three state-owned Chinese telcos. We're going to give each one the license for a different technology. Each one had to go out and develop the technology themselves in a different, it was a different technology wasted billions of dollars developing this technology that was already available in the world. Each one of them, despite there being 900 million mobile subscribers in China, hasn't managed to get more than 20 million subscribers on that technology. Another waste of shareholder money. Then if we look at some of the Korean companies, now I'll give an example. Samsung, it's the fourth largest company in the index. It's a chaebol company in Korea. And what is that? A chaebol is a family conglomerate. If you look at the organization chart, it looks a bit like the female brain with all the little boxes and the synapses going left, right. And it's just, it's just a minefield. There's so many cross-holdings, you can't make sense of the organization chart. And what happened here is that in 2015, they announced a merger with a company called Chael Industries, not core to their, to their uh, main business, but the point was that Chael Industries was owned by the founder's son. And they offered to buy this company at terms that were immensely favorable to the Chael industry shareholders, the sun being the biggest. And shareholders said, no, no, this isn't okay. We're not voting for this. So what did they do? They voted their own shares, which is not normally allowed in mergers and acquisitions. And they'd also been doing buybacks, and they gave those treasury shares to a white knight and asked him to vote those shares in favor of the deal as well. And so the deal went through, and it cost shareholders about $7 billion. And so this is the kind of thing that can happen in these very large Korean companies. Another reason to be a bit cautious is that many of those Chinese technology companies actually operate via variable interest entities. Now, what is a variable interest entity? Well, it's a legal structure whereby shareholders control a company through contracts rather than an actual equity ownership or through voting rights. And so what you are doing is that you are trusting that the company will uphold its contract to you. But, and let me just give you some examples. These include some of the largest, most high-profile tech companies in the world. Alibaba, Tencent, NetEase, JD.com, Baidu. They all operate with variable interest entities. And you trust that they will uphold it, but until they don't. So Alibaba, let's give you an example. In 2011... At that stage, Yahoo was still the largest shareholder in, in Alibaba, and SoftBank was also a large shareholder. 
And so by virtue of that, they were also actually a shareholder in Alipay, which was one of Alipay's subsidiaries. Alipay applied for a banking license from the banking regulator in China and it got declined by virtue of the fact that they were foreigners as shareholders. So the CEO of Alibaba, Jack Ma, decided to sever the, the variable interest entity. He's like, can't have this. Alipay needs a banking license. I'm just cutting the variable interest entity. And he took Alipay out of the Alibaba group structure. And shareholders lost that overnight. So SoftBank and Yahoo obviously sued Alibaba, and Alibaba settled with them out of court. But the point is that to this day, Alibaba still doesn't have an ownership interest in Ant Financial anymore. And so shareholders have to trust that those contracts that, they, that, that hold the variable interest entity in place will be upheld. And you, you have to do this with blind faith. The next reason to be a little bit nervous of the index is the China A shares. So until now, you, in China you get two types of shares. You get the China H shares and the China A shares. So China H shares are Chinese companies that are listed in Hong Kong. Now Hong Kong is like any developed market stock exchange. It's got very rigorous listing requirements. You have to meet IFRS. You have to report in English. There's very onerous listing requirements. And then you get the A shares. They are listed in Shenzhen and Shanghai, and there are no such requirements. They don't have to produce English financial statements. They don't have to report according to IFRS. And these shares are slowly becoming part of our benchmark. So the first inclusion was last year, and the inclusion factor is currently 5%. So that gives them a 0.8% weighting in the index at the moment. But they're on a path, a ramp up to full inclusion. At the time that these shares are included 100%, they will comprise 16.2% of the index. That is a very meaningful stake. Now, three of us from Coronation went to China in November last year to meet 40 of the largest A-share companies. I can tell you it was a complete waste of time. We met, out of all of those 40 companies, we decided that only one of them was investable. The rest of them, you would sit in a meeting with a translator, you would, talk, you would ask a question, the translator and the CEO would chat to each other for seven minutes and then the message would come back, we think that's possible. And you would try and get to the bottom of who the owners were, and it was just the, the son was the CEO, the father was the, the CFO, the, the cousin, and the, the nepotism, it was just frightening. And so out of all the 40 companies that we saw, we decided only one actually was investable. And yet these shares are going to comprise 16.2% of the index at full inclusion. So what is very important in an emerging market context is actually to filter the universe. There's some companies you just want to avoid entirely, and then the other companies that you want to size your position appropriately to reflect the risk that you're taking by investing in them. The next point to make is that passive investing in emerging markets actually isn't cheap. So I've got, I've pulled from eVestment, which tracks um, all of the various funds in the world, and I've put on here the top 12 cheapest emerging market funds globally. Now, most of these are institutional class. They're a couple of retail class. But your average fee here is 34 basis points. And what you remember, you must remember, is that this is before all trading costs or the, fund, the, the fees to enter or exit the product. Because many of these are exchange-traded funds, so you're buying them via brokerage account. So there actually is a fee to enter and a fee to exit. Now, what most of these funds don't show is the performance net of fees. 
In fact, only three of them were brave enough to disclose it. And I've put that here. So over 10 years, I've shown the return of the, of the fund and how much they've underperformed the benchmark by. So for the three funds that do disclose the returns netter fees, each one has lost somewhere between 1.7% and 2.4% per annum below the benchmark. So that is not a compelling reason to invest in, the, in a passive fund. Then, and I must apologize again to our co-sponsor, <laughs> passive um, investing in, in South Africa is even more expensive. So if you look, there's only two passive um, emerging market funds I could find. The one is the Deutsche Bank. That is 0.85 basis, uh, sorry, 85 basis points per annum. And Satrix comes in at about half of that, at about 40 basis points per annum. So your next question then, given all I've told you, is maybe let's, let's create a smart beta ETF. Okay, let's maybe filter it and say, okay, we'll exclude all the state-owned entities, maybe you'll exclude all the companies with corporate governance. But the bottom line is that if you were to create such a thing, first of all, smart BTFs cost even more, and secondly, you have to take an active decision in deciding which factors you're going to eliminate on. And so it would also be foolish to, to take a blanket approach. If you decided you wouldn't, go, you wouldn't own any companies with poor corporate governance, you wouldn't have any exposure to Alibaba, which is one of the best companies in the world. You also wouldn't have exposure to Samsung, which we haven't owned through the cycle, but right now we believe that with the ban on Huawei, Samsung's actually looking quite attractive. And so you would also be foolish to just take a blanket approach and eliminate on certain factors. Another point to make on, on emerging markets is that the currencies are volatile. So you might often get the call right on the stock, the stock goes up, but then you get taken out on the currency. And the point to make is that I'm not saying active managers avoid the blowouts, but the point is that passive investors cannot even try. So if we look, I've got a, the chart on the left is called the train wrecks. These are currencies that have lost between 10 and 55 times their value over the last 20 odd years. Now, if you, you could have picked the best stock you liked in those, mar those markets. If you owned one of those currencies, you would have lost shareholders a lot of money. Even the ones on the right haven't done too well. They've had their periods of losing and gaining significant amounts of money. So while we, don't, we are not top-down investors, we do take currencies into consideration when we construct our portfolio. So if we look at our, invested pro our investment process, what we do is we start with a filtered universe. We show preference for above-average companies in above-average industries in above-average countries. And then we also have coverage of some businesses that actually aren't in the index but are emerging market companies. A company like Constellation Brands, for example, is the Corona. It's Corona beer, but it's listed in, in America and, and as a result isn't in the emerging market index. So our fund would own emerging market companies that for some reason are not in the index as well. We do, our research then includes a risk adjustment factor for the country, the industry, and the corporate governance of that company. When we construct a portfolio, we take into account all of these risks and we make sure that we have a diverse portfolio and no concentrated single bet risk on a single country or technology or sector. And then we size our positions accordingly. So it's not like we wouldn't own Alibaba, but we would own it at a size that we think makes sense relative to the risk. Same with Samsung. And we have limits on the maximum amount of exposure in any one country. 
So if we just lastly take then a look at our top 10, you'll see it bears no resemblance to, to the, the actual index. Our top holding is HDFC. This is a housing finance in, company in India. Then we have 58.com, which is the largest classified business in China. We've got NASPAS, who you all know well. We've got Ping-On Insurance, which, as I said, it's taking advantage of a, a trend that people can now afford life insurance in China. We've got Wu Liangyi, that's our 1A share. That's a premium spirits producer in China. It's a spirit called Baiju, and people are starting to move away from the stuff that literally would eat away your kidneys and liver to something slightly less toxic. We've got British American Tobacco, which isn't in the index, but most of its revenue and profits comes from emerging markets. We've got Magnet, which is a food retailer in Russia and, and taking advantage of the formalization of the food sector there. We've got Alibaba, but obviously not in the same kind of size as the index. We've got AIA, which is a pan-Asia life insurer. And lastly, we've got Spurbank. And Spurbank is a state-owned company, but it is a well-run state-owned company. And so to have eliminated that, say, for example, from a smart beta ETF would have been foolish. And so what you can see is that our top 10 bears no resemblance to the index. And we believe this is a very compelling portfolio of businesses that will take advantage of the trends that we're seeing in emerging markets and will give investors very good returns over the next number of years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. That was very, very helpful. I think I have to show you all the disclaimers. I think I was told to do that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Lisa. That was very encouraging. And I think for me, my take home was how exciting it is to be in an emerging market as well. Uh, any questions quickly? Just one at the back. Hello. One, two. Hi. Um, you showed us the performance of uh, th the three uh, indices that managed to, well, companies that managed to uh, public, public, publish their performance. Have you compared your, the performance of your own fund to th those three that you did show? Um, I need to just open a different presentation for you, and I can show you the performance of our fund. Let me see if I can do this. Oh. Can you, where's the guy? Well, the bottom line is that since inception, which was about 2008, our fund has produced alpha of 4% per annum. Net of fees. <coughs> There was one more question over there. Hi, thanks so much. Um, I really um, valued just the, you know, you're talking about governance around Samsung and, and also the Chinese companies, but um, just a comment on, you know, our clients, we take ESG seriously and they've been tracking the MSCI World uh, Emerging Markets ESG Index. And that is uh, over 10 years has outperformed by 4% the vanilla index. The MSCI, which, sorry? The, the MSCI Emerging Markets ESG index. Okay. Um, and I think it's been quite consistent, the alpha that you've been able to get from that index. Um, yeah, so I just want to uh, play devil's advocate and sort of uh, back some of the passive, um, uh, you know, just the passive players in the, in the industry. Um, and as I said, it's been 4% alpha over 10 years, which most active managers uh, haven't been able to achieve. But mm -hmm. also, if you just look at the consistency of that alpha, it's also yeah. um, been quite... So that would be a, a similar performance to our own fund. 
Um, I'm not actually aware of the ESG um, index, um, so perhaps I can take a look at that. But that would achieve much of what, I mean, that would also be investing in the highest quality businesses. Um, but equally, you know, being able to take an active approach in emerging markets does make sense. These are very, very volatile countries, very <laughs> volatile stock exchanges. So at any one time, we are seeing immense opportunities in some countries, but not in others. So, you know, taking a portfolio approach rather than an index, I think if you back the right manager, an active manager should still be able to, to outperform. But certainly an ESG-focused index would eliminate some of the worst underperformers. Question at the back. I've got one question. Bruce Porteous, Aberdeen Standard Investments. Uh, it's a sort of HDFC-specific question. Uh, yeah. We've got uh, quite good relationships with them. So it's all very well being invested in companies like HDFC, HDFC Bank now, uh, when they're already established and successful. Uh, but would you have invested in these companies, you know, 30 years ago when they were, you know, startup companies and, you know, probably no one had really heard of them? Um, HDFC has been a holding in our fund for, sure, 10 years. Uh, we've owned it for a very long time, and it's right at the start of its growth runway, so that's a misconception. So in, in India, state-owned banks still control 70% of the market share, and HDFC is one of the, the best-run private the bank and the, so it's a, it, within it, it's a mortgage finance company that owns a bank. Um, so the state-owned banks still have a very, very large stake. And that's like a carcass to feed off because they're so poorly run and so poorly capitalized. And then you've got the fact that, I mean, HDFC is only just moving into rural areas. And rural India is still an immense population in terms of which to become banks to offer financial services to. So we don't believe that HDFC is in any way a mature company. Uh, so we're excited about its growth runway for a number of years. Okay, I think that's all. Thank you very much, Lisa.